Hey, everyone. Hope you enjoyed your Christmas if you celebrated. It's Rebecca. And a quick note to everyone on scheduling before we start this show. Next week, our episode will be posted on Wednesday, January 2nd, just like this one is on a Wednesday. We gave you the holidays off. I hope you all have a great new year and we'll see you back in 2019. I was in the kitchen literally every single day, just testing recipes and writing menus. And, um, you know, if you walked into that restaurant, I mean, it looked like Homeland. It was like <laughs> word webs on the walls, meat everywhere. It looked like Homeland, chain smoking, 50 cent, you know, just like blaring on the sound system. And for a month straight, we did that. We didn't do a soft opening at all. Um, we just opened the doors. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Hi, No Limits listeners. If you celebrate Christmas, I hope you had a great one. If not, I hope you had takeout on the couch and watched some Netflix. Hope it was great. All right, on today's episode, how chef Angie Marr did a complete career 180 to become one of the most celebrated chefs in the industry. She is the powerhouse behind the storied New York City restaurant, The Beatrice Inn. It's one of my favorite restaurants in the city. That's not the only reason why we're having her on, but anyone who loves Manhattan history is going to love this interview. Angie comes from a family of restaurateurs and food lovers, but her path to the culinary world wasn't so clear-cut. She dropped out of college, something her dentist father and Oxford-educated mother weren't too thrilled about, and she started a career in commercial real estate. When she started doing really well and living comfortably, her parents' worries were, you know, quelled. But that wasn't for long. At 27 years old, Angie was feeling unfulfilled, and after some soul-searching, she quit, and she used everything she'd saved up to go to culinary school. She got a job working in a kitchen, shucking oysters, peeling onions, and sweeping the floors for minimum wage. And for the first time in a long time, she knew she'd made the right decision. Fast forward to today, she is now the owner and executive chef at the Beatrice Inn, which is a New York staple that's been around for nearly 100 years. Here she is to tell you the story. Angie Marr, welcome to No Limits. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, Your restaurant, the Beatrice Inn, truly one of my favorites in New York. And I have to give a (laughs) shout out to Lindsay Janice, my former colleague here at ABC News. She and her husband went to your restaurant and texted me from there and said, the smoked duck is the (laughs) best thing I've ever eaten in my entire life. You have to go. Thank you. So I'm really excited to chat with you, not just about how great your food is, but also your backstory, because I think it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners because you were on a totally different path. Completely different. Yeah. I mean, this is the exact opposite of what I was doing. You know, I had I had like a nine to five. Um, I was in the corporate world for such a long time. And, uh, you know, then to make this complete 180 career switch, it was, um, you know, at the time, uh, completely crazy, uh, but so worth it in the end. You were in the corporate world, corporate real <clears throat> estate. Yeah, I worked for Collier's for over 10 years. 
And what did people say to you? Oh, you're leaving sort of the comforts of this nine to five job, as you describe it, that probably pays pretty well Mm -hmm. for the complete unknown. Yeah. And it was the complete unknown. You know, I mean, I was living in L.A. at the time and um, literally was like, I'm just I'm not really loving this. I'm not passionate about it. I'm really good at it. I'm making a lot of money. I'm traveling. Um, you know, on paper, it looks fantastic. Right. Um, but I wasn't really fulfilled and I wanted to do something a bit more creative. So, you know, I quit my job. I traveled and, um, you know, really I figured out, you know, when I was, I was in Spain and I figured it out there and I was just like, this is what I should be doing. Why am I not cooking? How old were you at the time? Um, I was probably, what if I was probably around 27, Okay. Yeah. Because I think that's, there's these different life stages. And I think your sort of your late 20s is one where uh, Mm -hmm. oftentimes if you're on that professional path early in your career, Mm -hmm. you sort of head down, work hard, do the things you're told to do. And then you wake up and think, is this really the thing that's resonating that's making me happy? Well, that's the thing is that, you know, I started out, um, I started out my first career very young because, you know, I mean, I... I got done with high school early. I dropped out of college and I was just like, I want to make money. Like that's all I was concerned about. And so, you know, I started out, you know, when I was 18 um, in that world. So for me to go into the corporate world at 18 and just it's very like school of the hard knocks, you know what I mean? Just learn by doing. And so, you know, I had like that 10 years under my belt and um, before I actually left it. Um, So I feel fortunate in that respect to have gotten all of that done, you know, versus had I like stayed in college and, you know, gone the more traditional path, um, you know, I I probably wouldn't have had as much life experience. You come from a family of immigrants, grew up in Seattle. What did your parents say first off about college and you dropping out and then about the decision to leave the cushy job for something else? Yeah, well, so my father was, um, you know, he grew up in the restaurant industry, um, put himself through college, uh, was a dentist, um, had a practice there for years. And my mom um, was born in Taipei and, uh, you know, went to Oxford. So she grew up bouncing back and forth between Taipei and the UK. Um, but they're both, you know, they're both college educated, uh, you know, tremendously bright. And for me to leave school was like the ultimate oh my God, what have we done? What have we failed on? You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes. And yeah, and so, um, you know, I think it was always, even throughout my corporate career, even though I was doing really well, I don't think, I think that there was always this underlying, God, we wish you had stayed in school. Um, And then when I left to start cooking, they were like, what is going on with you? <laughs> like, you're, what is going on with you? Like, we thought you were okay. Like, what's going on with you? And, um, you know, my father, I had this conversation with him and, uh, he was the one who I really thought was going to be the most disappointed, um, that I was leaving and, and going into school because he came from the restaurant world. You know, he washed dishes. Um, he cooked and, um, you know, that's, that's what my family had growing up. They all had restaurants. And, um, you know, I thought he was going to be the most disappointed and he actually wasn't, you know, he wasn't, which for me meant so much because he and I were so close. And, you know, when I explained it to him and I said, look, you know, this is what I'm passionate about. This is, you know, food has been a part of our lives. This is what our family has always done. This is what I've grown up around. You know, he literally said, he was like, you have to do it then. He's like, you have to do it. 
He's like, and I fully support you. And that for me, I think, was the turning point because as soon as my father was behind it, it was like, cool, like, you know, no old bar, like, let's just go for it. Um, and so that's what we did. You ultimately bought the Beatrice in. Mm-hmm. And so you're both the owner as well as the executive chef. What were the steps you took in between <clears throat> to learn the business? Oh, my God. So many. Um, so, you know, we I like I started out in New York like I moved here with no money, um, no place to live. And, um, you know, because I spent all my all the money that I'd made, I spent it traveling and the rest of it I put into uh, my tuition for culinary school. So when I moved here, it was like, okay, I need to get a job immediately and I'm going to be in culinary school. And that's what I was going to do. And so I was going to school full time and I was working full time. And, um, you know, I I grew up in the kitchens that were, you know, they were hard kitchens. It was like I was shucking oysters and peeling onions for a year um, and sweeping the floors and, you know, making minimum wage. And that's how I started. And, you know, I was... I had never been so happy. Like I was never so happy. It was like I definitely made the right decision um, and it was fantastic. And, you know, it was really going from restaurant to restaurant, putting in my time, putting in my year, year and a half, two years and, you know, learning from everybody that I could. And it wasn't only learning the good aspects of what I wanted to become, but also taking the negative aspects of restaurants and saying, okay, this is who I never want to become and this is what I never want my restaurant to be. Because I think that's one of the great parts about working for other people is that we take the positives and the negatives and then you formulate your own opinion, you formulate who you want to become. And, um, you know, mentorship in that way, it's so funny because, you know, we think of mentors in that like, okay, this is, you know, how your we grow person or your whatever, person, yeah. right? To take you under your wing, but it's also you have mentors by default, right? Just by virtue of they're who you're around, and they also teach you who you don't want to become, or you know um, what what might not work for you. Maybe it works for them, but it doesn't work for you. And I think that's fantastic. And to put in your you know your time with people and really learn all of those things is so huge because I think, you know, it's better to learn off of somebody else's dime, I've always found, than had I just gone and made my mistakes on my own. Yes. Right? That I think that's a great point. And <clears throat> I think it's something for people who are who feel entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. there's a way to be entrepreneurial yeah. inside of something on somebody else's exactly. dime. Absolutely. Um, and I and, and it can work both ways. I mean, there there are people who probably would come on No Limits and say, yeah. I just knew I needed to take the jump and the leap that day. Right. But to your point, there's a lot that can be gleaned and you can sort of be piecing your idea together. So yeah. is that what you were doing? You were envisioning I want this thing and each day you take a layer of something you experienced and put it on paper or were you no. just thinking of it in the back of your mind? It was more like it was more like how did I feel? Like how did I feel? How did everybody else feel around me? Like, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, you know, I wanted to learn how to butcher, so I went to go work for Andrew Tarlow at Reynard and I learned everything about butchering. I wanted to learn how to run a Michelin starred restaurant. So I worked at the Spotted Pig when it had its Michelin star. Um, and I was there at both of those places. You know, I wasn't there to make friends. I wasn't there to, um, you know, be really like, uh, you know, immersed in what that kitchen culture was. I was literally there to learn everything that I possibly could and 
put it on my resume because I knew that I was going to open up another restaurant. I knew that I was always going to have mine, my own. Um, and I wanted to take all of that knowledge, you know, and, and that's, that's what I think is so important. So as you're piecing together all of this knowledge, <clears throat> running a restaurant, I think is probably one of the most financially confusing businesses to get into because not only are you dealing with the cost of real estate and you're dealing with employees who oftentimes there's a really high churn rate, the mm-hmm. number of people who are leaving and, and mm-hmm. not, you know, going to be loyal to you. And then there's the potential that they'll steal from you. Right. And then you have the product itself, which goes bad. I mean, yeah. that expensive meat there's so many variables. last forever. Yeah, there's so many variables. And that's the thing is that, you know, I think a lot of people think about, and this is what I think that people that are not in the industry don't understand. You know, it's quite often that, you know, people say, hey, and your restaurant is so expensive. And I'm like, actually, it's not because I've got West Village rent to pay. You know, um, I deal with only meat. So you're running at, um, you know, and you think about minimum wage is rising to $15 very soon. Um, you know, and not only that, but we want to provide our employees, you know, at a higher rate than they would normally make because I want to keep the retention. And for the most part, we have a really good employee retention because we treat everybody well. And our our restaurant is very much a learning restaurant. You know, I don't hire people with like tons of experience in the kitchen because I want to teach them from scratch. Mm. Um, I think it's That's always a cultural that way. thing too. Yeah, it's a cultural thing. And but, you know, when we think about restaurants, it's like the margins are thin. The rent is high. You know, minimum wage is like skyrocketing. You talk about insurance. You talk about all of these variables. And, you know, it is it's not an easy business to be in. It's not an easy business at all. And, you know, a lot of people have asked, you know, why I waited so long to get into this industry. And, um, you know, it obviously didn't occur to me till later in life, till I was like, you know, in 27 um, to get into it. But if they ask me, you know, would I go back and would I get into this business sooner? The answer is no, because at the end of the day, having that background in corporate real estate and being able to read my lease, to be able to understand a P&L, to be able to understand labor costs, food costs, all of those things, you know, that is something that nobody, there's no dollar amount value that you can place on that because at the end of the day, it's, I got into this because I wanted to be creative, right? But money fosters creativity. And at the end of the day, as creative as I want to be, you know, this is a business, this is a business and that's it. And I think a lot of people that get into the industry don't fully understand that, that this is a business and we need to make money, you know? And I don't know about everybody else, but like it's kind of hard to be creative when you can't pay your light bill, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's such a good point, <clears throat> coupling those two skill sets together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's often lost. If, if you're a person that doesn't have that background, if yeah. you start out cooking and that's your background, then important to find somebody who you can totally exactly. trust who knows the other side exactly. of too. Exactly. A hundred percent. How does it how did you figure out on the food creation side of it? Mm. Okay, these are this is the number of vegetables I need to purchase. This is <laughs> yeah. the like how did that part work out? Well, Rebecca, we don't do vegetables, as you know. <laughs> there are no vegetables. <laughs> there are no vegetables. But this is the number of uh, <laughs> Steaks I need to purchase, whatever. When you look at it, this is, in essence, a very small family-run business. And, um, you know, we prepare everything fresh every day. Um, And, you know, what we have to sell is what we have to sell. And that's it. 
Um, so, you know, there are often, and you mentioned the duck earlier and, you know, we sell so many of those and, you know, of course it's like, there are days where they sell out by like eight thirty, and then we don't have any more and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But we do things like, you know, fresh every day. And it's so important to me to have that. And, um, you know, it, it is a lot of planning, you know, we, for the size of the kitchen, you know, the kitchen is probably about as big as this room. Um, you know, it's like 200 square feet and, uh, you know, it's, it's very small and we have a huge menu. Um, so it, it's a lot of planning. It's a lot of planning. It's a, it's a really good team. The majority of executive <clears throat> chefs who are in the realm that you're in, that are playing the game at your mm. level, are men. Mm. Has it come up that you're a woman? How does how does all of that factor in, if at all? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because I think it factors in a lot more to other people. Mm. Um, but it doesn't, it's never really factored in for me. And, um, you know, I think the only time that it does factor in to me is when I do do interviews and people are like, <laughs> oh, you're a female chef and, you know, you're, you know, all these things. And and then I say, well, no, I'm just a chef because I've never looked at myself as anything other than that. I've never looked at myself as, uh, you know, an Asian chef. I've never looked at myself as a female chef. I've never looked at myself as anything but a chef. And, you know, I think in the time that we're in right now, it's tremendously interesting to see um, you know, all of these different facets coming out just by way of where we are in this, you know, the state of the world. Um, you know, I find that over the past three years, you know, it's more about, you know, you're female or, you know, like most recently it's been a, uh, you know, you're an Asian chef. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, cause for me, I've never been made to feel different ever until, somebody actually said that to me mm. and it was so I was so taken aback and because I've only ever looked at myself as a chef because I you know ever since I was a kid you know I grew up in a neighborhood that was um, a primarily Jewish neighborhood and I lived down the street from little Ethiopia and down the street from the Vietnamese community and I was so ingrained in the Chinese community and so um, you know down the street from uh, a very heavily Mexican populated community. So for me, color has never been a thing ever. And I've never, you know, and I've always lived in, um, you know, New York or LA or Seattle. So I've always been in these melting pots of cities. So when these things come up, I'm very much like, what are you talking about? You know, because food for me has always been the great equalizer. You know, there's no color, there's no gender, there's no sexuality, there's no religion, none of that. It's just really great food is really great food. And really great food brings everybody to the table, regardless of social status, financial status, any of that. And that's what it should be about. And I think the further that we talk about, you know, being a woman or being a woman of color in the kitchen or any of that, I think it actually just further marginalizes that. And it's not a conversation that we should be having. It's like, get over it. It's just food. I'm just a chef, you know? And, and a really a good, good one. one at that. That's it. Awesome one at that. Thank you. You also have a really strong <clears throat> social media presence. I look at your profile on social media versus some of the other chefs in, mm. in, in New York City. And you just you have a lot of fun with it. You do. And do you put did you put a lot of thought into that initially? No, no it's really interesting. It's like, you know, um, social media is, you know, it's a lot of work. Obviously, we all know that it's a lot of work. But, um, you know, I it's really interesting because I. You know, I have a lot of other passions besides food. You know, I've always been into fashion. You know, I always follow all of the shows. 
You are um, the best dressed chef I know. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, we'll take some pictures of her whole wardrobe that she walked in with today. It's great. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I've always been a fashion girl, like since I was a kid. And you know, when I was, I think I was like, you know, six, seven, eight years old. Um, you know, I would go into my mom's room, and the magazines that I would take off of her nightstand were Vogue, Gourmet, and Food and Wine. And so, you know, which kind of tells you like where my head yes. has always been at. Um, and, you know, so it's like I, I always watch the fashion shows. There's never there's never a show that I don't miss. Um, and, you know, and I also am, am very in love with the art world. You know, I'm doing I'm really excited to be doing um, some projects with Sotheby's and W Magazine. And uh, that's all coming up. So, um, you know, I think my social media very much is a reflection of that. And I very much do believe that just like, you know, um, the restaurant is a business. Uh, when we talk about the creative side of things with food, you know, food, fashion, art, life, you know, there's that joie de vivre with all of these things. And they're all very much intertwined. How did you make the decision to ultimately <clears throat> purchase the Beatrice Inn? Because I think there's a lot of risk that came with that. Mm. I didn't want the restaurant. You I said no. Yeah, I said no. When they offered it to me, I said no. I was like, you're crazy. I don't want it. Um, and, you know, I'd been the chef there for two and a half years at the time. And um, I felt like there was so much negativity surrounding that restaurant. We'll be right back with more Chef Angie Marr after a quick word from our sponsor. So you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And, you know, I'd been the chef there for two and a half years at the time. And um, I felt like there was so much negativity surrounding that restaurant. What was it? What was wrong with it? You know, it was... um, So the, the Beatrice has, like, this really long and storied history. It was one of New York's first speakeasies in the 1920s. Uh, it was a very much beloved family-owned Italian restaurant um, for over 50 years. And the Cardias owned that building. They had the they had the restaurant. It was amazing. And it was very much a, a neighborhood standby. And then, you know, uh, Paul Sauvigny took it over with Matt Abernack, and it became one of New York's notor- most notorious nightclubs. Um, you know, it was like the, the model uh, celebrity hangout in the early 2000s. I was never cool enough to get in. <laughs> Um, you know, I had to buy it to get in the restaurant, but, uh, you know, I was never cool enough to get in and, um, you know, it, it became this hot spot where, you know, you had to know somebody to get in. There was a secret password, you know, the it was crazy. Yeah. It was like, you know, it was crazy. <laughs> it was actually, it was Harley. It was Harley. Harley. Yeah. There's, um, I have this neighbor, his name is Todd. He's fantastic. He's actually one of our best regulars now, but his dog, his name is Harley. And uh, if you knew Harley, the doorman would let you in. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. I clearly didn't know Harley at the time. I yeah. know her now. But, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't know her at the time. Um, but, you know, it, it became kind of shunned by the neighborhood because of, you know, it was like it was like a Coke den. Mm-hmm. And it was eventually shut down because of that and, like, the noise complaints from the neighbors. And then for Graydon Carter to take it over and for it to have this, like, you know, um, very, I think there was like that red velvet rope policy. Yeah. Or that's what it was viewed at, at least. Um, and so, 
you know, I didn't want it because of that. I was already getting ready to leave, to take something else over, to start my own restaurant. I was already in the process of going down that road when they came to me. And I just felt like, God, I just really want a fresh start. Mm. You know, I really want a fresh start. And, you know, then after I talked to Pat Lafreda, after I really sat down with it and thought about it longer, it was like, how often do you get the chance to buy a piece of New York history? You know, it doesn't really happen that often. And if we could buy this restaurant, return it to the neighborhood and have it be this really beautiful neighborhood gem um, and write a new chapter, a more welcoming chapter, um, it was going to be the best the best comeback story ever in restaurants, you know? And that's really what we're trying to write now. That's really the chapter that I want to write. And that's, that's really what I want to bring this restaurant to. You know, I want it to be this, not only a neighborhood gem for the West Village, but I want it to be a New York standby. You know, like you come to New York, this is where you eat. Um, and to have it be on that level where it is this, you know, classic New York restaurant, you know, that's what I want for it. That's what it deserves. So just for, for our listeners, Graydon Carter, then at the time, the editor of Vanity Fair, Pat mm-hmm. Lafreda, would you call him the, one of the most famous butchers? I mean, I th- is there anybody else? I, I, don't, you know? I, honestly, I don't know I don't know is. any other butcher by name. Yeah. I'm sure there are some I'm great sure ones there are out some. there, but I don't know a single other butcher by yeah. name. So how do you get there? How what What is beyond the vision? What are the steps that you have to take to put a restaurant on the map? Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of coffee. Um, I, you know, I did not leave that restaurant for four months. Because you bought yeah. it, you shut it down. I bought it. I bought it. I didn't. So I purchased it in um, in April of 2016. Didn't tell anybody about it. And then in July, we went public with it and then shut the doors immediately. And I wanted to do that because I needed time to reformulate a menu. I needed time to plan. I needed, you know, it was all very, for me, it was very calculated, right? Because um, I knew, as soon, I mean, you know, anybody that buys Graydon out of his own restaurant, like, you, someone's going to take notice, right? So we shut the doors immediately. Um, and I was in the kitchen literally every single day just testing recipes and writing menus. And, um, you know, if you walked into... That restaurant, I mean, it looked like Homeland. It was like <laughs> word webs on the walls, meat everywhere. It looked like Homeland. Like, seriously, like I was a crazy person, you know, like no makeup, like just chef whites and like completely like chain smoking. Like that's that's who I was, you know, and it was like 50 cent, you know, just like blaring on the sound system. And that was it. Um, and for a month straight, we did that. And, um, you know, when we reopened, it was crazy. We didn't do a soft opening at all. Um, we just opened the doors. And what's the thinking behind that? Why would you do a soft opening versus not doing one? Um, you know, the soft opening that is, you know, that is like, you know, you get your sea legs, you, you know, test the food, you get the front of the house staff ready to go. You get service down. I didn't have the luxury of doing that because we didn't have any money. I spent it all. I spent it all buying the restaurant, you know? Um, So, you know, I found myself uh, kind of back to where I was, you know, eight years prior when I moved to New York, Um, you know, zero money and uh, just couldn't be in a happier place. What is the number one thing you would say to anyone opening their doors of whatever restaurant it is? What's the most important thing you have to think of day one? 
Yeah. Uh, stay true to who you are. You know, stay true to who you are. I um, I got a lot of advice when I was opening that restaurant, and it was, you know, the summer leading up to us shutting down, it was very much a, you know, I had all these people in my ear saying, like, well, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And finally, in July, when we made the announcement that we had purchased it and then we shut the doors, that was my opportunity to say, hey, you know what, everybody, like, F you, don't want to listen to anything you have to say, and I need to just be in my own head, in my own world, and I'm just going to cook the food that's important to me. Because everybody kept saying, well, you have to have this for somebody. You have to have fish. Mm -hmm. You have to have a chicken. You've got to have this. You've got to have something for everybody. And in August of 2016, when we shut down, that's when I really said, I was like, you know, I was getting so, I felt like I was getting this, departure of who I who I was and what I wanted to say and when we shut the doors that's when I really realized it and I was like no like I'm not gonna have anything for everybody because I don't have to because my food speaks so true to who I am and you know I don't eat cooked fish unless it's fried you know (laughs) or it's like you know Chinese food right like I don't eat cooked fish so I'm not gonna cook any fish and I don't I you know I think chicken is a vegetable and I only like chicken when it's fried chicken. So we're only going to do fried chicken. And, you know, I'm going to cook meats and game meats and lots of meat pies. And I don't care. And this restaurant isn't for everybody. And that's okay. Because there's a million other restaurants in New York City. You guys can go to any one of them. And it was us really taking a stand and saying, this is what we do. And we're right at it. And that's it. I love that. There isn't anyone who walks in the door of No Limits that doesn't have a point of view. If you don't have that North Star, and in particular, and I think this actually is more important today than it was even 10, 20 years ago. If you're not differentiated and you're speaking to a very specific audience, Mm -hmm. then those early days aren't going to get you anywhere. Trying to be everything to everyone, especially now, is right. impossible. The way people find things, the way people relate to things is because yeah. it's specific to them. Exactly. And that's the whole thing, you know. And we sit there and, you know, people are always like, you know, you have that one-off customer that's like, you know, why don't you cook fish? You don't have enough fish on the menu. Like, I'm like, you know, look, I got lobster. I got a lot of raw crudo because I love raw crudo. <laughs> There's all these crustaceans because I love those. If you want cooked fish, go see Eric Repair. He's amazing at it. You know what I mean? Yes. It's the same thing, but that's what he loves. And he does that. And, you know, I just happen to love mean. So this is what we do. And I think it really goes to that, that old saying, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Nobody wants to be that. You know, I don't want to be that. I just want to do what we're really good at and what we specialize in and what we're passionate about. Because at the end of the day, what I truly believe is that, you know, we've all been to those restaurants, right? And there's something for everybody and it could be plated beautifully. It could be seasoned perfectly. It could be executed perfectly, but maybe there's no soul in it. There's no like gusto. There's no soul. There's no passion. And you can taste that on the plate. And for me, I never want anybody to come into my restaurant and to say that there was no passion and soul in a plate that I put out because I truly believe that, you know, when you come into my restaurant, whether you, whether you, you know, whether you meet me, whether you don't meet me, whatever, but if you're just eating my food, you know, if I'm really, really lucky, I get an entire meal to make an impression on you, right? That's if I'm really lucky. The reality is I probably get one bite. 
I get one bite, I get one plate to make an impression on you. And that is why I'm so, I believe so ardently in having that one bite be everything. It should be everything. It should be sexy. It should be provocative. It should invoke feelings of nostalgia for something that your grandmother or your grandfather or your parents cooked for you. It should, um, you know, incite thought. It should, uh, you know, it should be everything and it should be that one bite. And if we can do that consistently through an entire meal for our guests, that's where the magic happens, you know. But if I can do that for one bite, it's all I need. That's a lot of pressure. It's That's a lot greatness. of pressure. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. Back to your point about it being a business and you coming <clears throat> at this from the business standpoint. How do you think about the menu if something that is dear to you that you believe in just isn't selling? Do you take mm-hmm. it off the menu? How do you think that through? You know, it's really funny. I um, So I one of the great loves of my life is uh, is calf's liver. And, <laughs> you know, as so many people. Yeah. <laughs> One of the great loves of my life is calves liver. And, um, you know, I'll use this as an example. Uh, you know, I whenever I go to Paris, I I don't go to any of the new restaurants, but I only like I'll eat it at Chez George like, you know, every day. Like, that's all I want. And I go and I have liver and I've got kidneys and that's what I eat. Um, and unfortunately, I can't do that at my restaurant because like I think you've got a very select group of people that will eat it. Um, but the menu is written in such a way that it is like, you really have to love the food that we do. You've got to love meat. You have to love, um, you know, coming into a place and really just surrendering to the experience that it is. And I think when people do that, they're going to get an experience that they didn't really expect. And you know, things like that are, you know, maybe outside of everybody's box, like the calves over, you know, of mm-hmm. course I like run it as a special and, you know, <laughs> when we have it and, you know, that's fine. But, um, but I love the menu so much and there was so much thought and, and effort put into that menu that there really is nothing that, you know, doesn't sell and it is very diversified. Um, and, you know, I, I do believe though that, and I, I say this all the time, that, you know, I always really want to cook food that that takes people out at their knees, right? That's unexpected. That you walk into our restaurant and when you really say, okay, you know, I'm just going to sit back and let you guys do what you do. Like, that's where we have the most fun. When you come in, when, you know, and then the next time you and your husband come in, you know, what we'll do is we'll say, look, Rebecca, you know, what do you want to eat? What do you not want to eat? Mm-hmm. And that's it. And then you just let us drive. And that's when those great experiences happen. And, you know, I, I really get excited when people let us do that. And it's happening now more often than not. It's awesome. What's been the toughest lesson along the way? Oh, um, you know, switching from player to coach to owner and really um, straddling that line between ownership and still being in the trenches with everybody. And, uh, you know, it's very different. It's very how different. you relate to people, how we relate to people, um, the delegation of tasks every day. And I'm so hands on and I'm I've always like in the trenches. I, you know, I'm not you know, I don't know a day that has happened that I that I actually haven't closed my restaurant myself. Um, you know, I grew up in a lot of kitchens where. Um, you know, chef was there only like through the the bulk of service, like when it's busy and then they would leave. 
And I never wanted to be that person. I wanted to, because that, that's who I wanted. I wanted people to come work for me because they were going to get to be right next to me the entire time. I wanted to be the chef that was there before they got there and there after they left. And that's something that I believe very ardently in. And I also very much believe that there's nothing that is not my job. You know, my name is on the lease. My name is on the door. Like, I take out the trash at the end of the night with the porters. You know, I deck scrub the bar, um, you know, at the end of the night with my team. I deck scrub the kitchen. Like, that's what we do. And that, for me, has been hard because when you switch to ownership and you know especially doing what we do like for me to be able to like come on your podcast and you know write our book and you know travel and do like all of these things that's been a really hard learning lesson for me it's been a personal tr- struggle for me to say okay i know that i need to do all of these things because it's important to my business and it's important to growing our brand but i also want to be in the kitchen You know, I want to be in the kitchen and there's nothing more that I love than to just be there. But I also, you know, understand that I I do have to do these things, you know, and to to grow our brand um, and to in the bigger cause of, you know, making the Beatrice that, you know, that New York classic. These are the things that we have to do. Um, So for me, it's been a lesson of delegation, um, hiring people that believe in um, what we're building as much as I do. And even if they don't have that ownership stake in it, they take ownership mm-hmm. of the restaurant. They take ownership of the team. And, you know, it's it's finding people like that that is so amazing because the truth is is that I've learned that I can't do everything myself. Yeah. I can't. And it, it truly does take a village. It takes a village to raise a child and it takes a village to open a restaurant. So, um, you know, that has been the biggest learning lesson for me is saying, okay, I do need to take a step back and I can't do everything myself. So let's find people who are uh, believe in what we do as much as I do and who are actually better than me, you know, at this. And and that has been amazing. When does your day begin? When does it end? Yeah, Um, my days are crazy. Uh, we're open six days a week. I'm in the kitchen six days a week. Um, the day that we are closed is my office day. Um, so I work seven days a week, essentially. I um, am in the kitchen. On a regular basis, I'm in the kitchen at, uh, well, I'm in the office at 9.30. I'm usually up at 7.30. And um, I'm in the kitchen by like 10, 10.30, um, you know, getting ready for dinner service and like looking at orders and butchering and all of that stuff. Um, and then I close the kitchen down and, you know, I'm usually out by like two 30 or three 30. Um, and then I'm back, you know, up awake at seven again. And it's doubly crazy now because we're, we just started, um, shooting our cookbook, which is called butcher and beast and it's out, uh, next October. So we just started shooting the cookbook. So now I'm like in the kitchen at, you know, seven, like cooking and, and shooting and it's, you know, and then running service after that. Um, so it's, that's, that's like basically my day and, um, you know, it's a grind and it isn't, you know, like I know the social media is very like, you know, look, I made this butcher stew and like, you know, really excited about the Chanel boots I'm wearing, (laughs) but you know, it's, um, you know, it, it takes a lot, you know, it's a grind, it's a grind and, uh, you know, a lot of really good concealer, I guess. (laughs) What, what's been the worst advice along the way? Hmm. Um, 
God, you know, there's been so much. <laughs> there's been so much. Um, you know, I think the worst advice that I've gotten is, um, I think it came from probably a really good place, but I think that the worst advice that I get is that I need to slow down. Hmm. Um, that I need to slow down and that, um, you know, that I'm, that I like, because I push really hard. I push myself really hard. I push my team really hard. Um, you know, and I think that probably some of the worst advice is that, you know, that I need to slow down. And that's advice that I got, um, you know, years ago uh, before I owned the restaurant and, you know, before anything. And they were like, you know, you don't own the restaurant. You, you know, some, it's somebody else that's making money. You just collect a salary. Like, why do you work so hard? Why do you why do you do this? And it was the worst advice that I ever got. And I never took it. Thank God. Um, but. I've always had this mentality of like, no, we like, we need to get it in now. We need to grind now because we do have this one life and we have this one chance. And, you know, I don't want to ever slow down because, you know, like I hope that I'm like 70 and I'm still grinding, you know what I mean? Um, and I, I, I think that if I had taken that advice, if I had slowed down before I was an owner, before I, um, you know, had the chance to to buy a restaurant, to really start building my brand, all of that, that I wouldn't have actually been able to make those things happen. And yeah. that's the thing. If I had just sat back on my heels and been like, cool, I don't own the restaurant. I'm collecting a salary, not whatever. My problem. Not my problem. Like, you know, I probably would still be in that position. I probably wouldn't be in the position that I am now. So, you know, and I started building my brand far before I even owned the restaurant. And I'm really glad that I didn't take that advice. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Angie Marr. Beatrice you. in. Thank you Go for having me. Go eat there. It's awesome. <laughs> and the cookbook will be out a year from now. All right, it's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And here's this week's pick. Hi, my name's Courtney Bell, and I'm the president of Ungraded Produce, which is a produce delivery service that's on a mission to fight food waste and improve food access. When I was studying environmental science at Duke, I learned that 52% of all the fruits and vegetables grown in America get left in the fields or are discarded in landfills oftentimes just for being an excess or ugly, meaning that they're typically size, shaped, or colored, but have no quality issues. From there, this produce will rot and generate methane gases. So as a tree hugger and a bit of a veggie enthusiast, I wanted to find a way to give this ugly produce a second chance. So I launched Ungraded Produce my senior year. I developed the model that incentivizes farmers to pick and sell their ugly produce instead of leaving it in the ground and in turn provide consumers with affordable boxes of recovered fruits and vegetables delivered to their door. All right. Congratulations. Remember, listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Courtney about creating her company. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, or you have some career questions, send them to me here at no Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I know how busy everyone listening is. I really appreciate it when you take the time to write, especially when you take the time to write us a five-star review. So thank you so much to those who have been leaving them, especially those who, you know, go beyond the five stars and even leave us a message. Like Phil 22 who says, couldn't love Rebecca more. Smart, quick information. All right. Well, thanks, Phil 22 We love you. 
And finally, a shout out to our awesome team here that helps make this happen every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.